Good morning. How many of you, when you were younger, enjoyed the poems from Dr. Seuss? I really did. And so to kind of highlight this morning, we're going to be talking about God's purpose in the waiting periods. And uh, one of the poems that uh, really came to mind was a poem from Dr. Seuss. So uh, one thing I love about Dr. Seuss's poems in, in 2020, I was about to say 1920, <laughs> in 2020 is they're all on YouTube. So let's watch this real quick. Oh, the places you'll go as we open up for our sermon this morning. Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Seuss. Congratulations, today is your day. You're off to great places, you're off and away. You have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own and you know what you know, and you are the guy who will decide where to go. You look up and down streets, look them over with care. About some you will say, I don't choose to go there. With your head full of brains and your shoes full of feet, you're too smart to go down any not so good street. And you may not find any you'll want to go down. In that case, of course, you'll head straight out of town. It's opener there in the wide open air. Out there, things can happen and frequently do to people as brainy and footsy as you. And when things start to happen, don't worry, don't stew, just go right along, you'll start happening too. Oh, the places you'll go. You'll be on your way up, you'll be seeing great sights, you'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed, you'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be best of the best. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest. Except when you don't. Because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say so, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. You can get all hung up in a prickly perch, and your gang will fly on. You'll be left in a lurch. You'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump, and the chances are then that you'll be in a slump. And when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. You will come to a place where the streets are not marked. Some windows are lighted, but mostly they're darked. A place you could sprain both your elbow and chin. Do you dare to stay out? Do you dare to go in? How much can you lose? How much can you win? And if you go in, should you turn left or right, or right and three quarters, or maybe not quite, or go around back and sneak in from behind? Simple it's not, I'm afraid you will find, for a mind maker-upper to make up his mind. You can get so confused that you'll start in to race down long wiggled roads at a breaknecking pace, and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space, headed I fear toward a most useless place, the waiting place for people just waiting. Waiting for a train to go, or a bus to come, or a plane to go, or the mail to come, or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, or the snow to snow, or the waiting around for a yes or a no, or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. Waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for the wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for Friday night, or waiting, perhaps, for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. 
No, that's not for you. I don't know if you've ever really looked at that poem, but it's actually pretty deep, isn't it? <laughs> it's life. It's raw life. And I wanted to end at that spot because obviously uh, Dr. Seuss brings out uh, the feeling that a lot of us can feel when we're in a period in our life where we just seem to be waiting. Waiting for our careers to take off, waiting for our purpose from God, waiting for a, a spouse, a husband or a wife, waiting for kids, just waiting for anything. And, and I don't mean just like waiting in line for a dinner that's sure to come in a few minutes. I mean waiting and waiting and waiting where you do not know how long the wait is going to be because it's almost a season of waiting. In fact, if there's one weakness that I see in both the church and in America in general is that we have lost our ability to wait on God. Since we live in an instant society, we want instant everything. Our microwaves give us instant food and coffee or heating pads. The internet gives us instant news or sex or binge television. Disneyland now offers fast passes because who doesn't want to wait two and a half hours to ride Space Mountain? I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to wait two and a half hours when I could stroll on through the line. In fact, it's kind of funny. A lot of times, I'm one of the most impatient people you'll ever really meet. I can't stand to wait. And it's often at Disneyland or some of these other theme parks where you're sitting there waiting and you've been in a line for hours. You know, well, not hours, but it seems like hours. It seems like days sometimes. And you're just sitting there waiting and the line isn't moving and there's all these people on one side of the line and then they've got the fast pass line. And what are they doing? They're just walking and strolling. And every now and then I just want to reach out and slap them. <laughs> and another part of me is like, take me with you, you know? So they, there's something in us where we really struggle with the weight. So Dr. Seuss in many ways was right, but he was wrong too because sometimes the waiting is just what God has for you. Waste, waiting time does not have to be wasted time. Waiting time does not have to be wasted time. Noah waited 120 years before the first drop of rain fell. Abraham and Sarah, they waited 20 years before their promised child Isaac came. Moses waited 40 years in the backside of the desert before he went on to lead the Israelites in the exodus out of Egypt. Elijah waited for three and a half years for a drought to subside. David waited for a decade and a half long to be king when he was anointed king almost 15 years earlier. Jesus waited for 40 days to begin his ministry after he was baptized. Peter waited for 40 days before the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit fell on them in power in the upper room. Paul would wait three years in the Arabian desert before he would become the great missionary that we knew him to be. See, in all of this, the waiting made each and every person better than they were before. The waiting made each and every person stronger than if we had jumped the gun. 
And if there's one thing that I, as I kind of look over my life and realize is that waiting is one of the most difficult things to do because we, we almost want to get the mystery over with. What's coming ahead in life? What's happening? Let's just solve the mystery now because sometimes waiting with the unknown ahead of us is so much harder and takes so much faith than if we just kind of leap out and see what's going to happen. I remember one time when I was younger, in Michigan, there are many small rivers, and they're maybe about as wide as, well, our widest row there, and, and, but they're deep. They're, they're deep, caverned rivers, and, and I remember my friends and I were riding our bike. We found one that was 35 feet of the river, and so, you know, we went down. Okay, it's deep enough. Thought it was deep enough, but I remember just all of us sitting over there looking over at the water. And finally, I just couldn't take it. <laughs> Hoisted myself off and just was falling down. It was then that I didn't know if it was deep enough or not. But it's just that sense of, you know what? I can't wait. I'm not going to be the one. You know, we're going to sit here for hours. I have just got to leap first and see what happens. And often, if you think about it, the biggest mistakes we make in our life are when we leap first and see what happens rather than waiting upon God. You know, if you look at a mushroom, mushrooms grow overnight, but they're soft and spongy and have very little strength. But oaks take thousands, well, hundreds of years for them to reach their full maturity, and they're the strongest trees on the planet. Waiting for God in the moment, it may feel like a denial, but it's only a delay. Remember that. Being in a season of a waiting period, it may seem like a denial from God, but oftentimes it is merely a delay because in God's heart, the wait is for you. It's during that wait that God is growing your faith, that God is working on things that need to be worked on, that God is preparing you for whatever may come next. And one of those things is bigger things that we cannot see that God has for us in the future. I'd like to do something here. We're going to read from 1 Kings chapter 17. Uh, I was originally going to read 1 to 15, but we're going to read 1 to 8. And while we're reading this, could we just have everybody stand up uh, as we read the word of God? Let's not just sit back and relax, but let's stand and really respect these words that are from another world, truly. And so... Let's read this, 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. I'll read it for you. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, Tishbe in Gilead is Bookertown, Israel, in nowhere Gilead. It is literally uh, a mountain town that very few people would have known about. It was kind of the truck stop between two major regions. Not a lot of people there. Not a lot of people would expect anybody of significance to come from there. Uh, the, only really re the only real reason we even know of this town is because it's associated with Elijah. Beyond that, yeah, there's a few connections and a few instances, but not much. So Elijah is a mountain man from an unknown town with not a lot of popularity at all. And it's this man that God calls to the great king Ahab who is importing uh, demon worship and idol worship on a commercial scale faster than anything that the country has ever seen. And Elijah says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, 
There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now that's an interesting sentence that Elijah says. Elijah doesn't necessarily say God is going to shut up the heavens. God is going to cause the drought. Elijah says I am. At my command there's going to be no rain and no dew. Now that's some of us may feel a little uncomfortable like with that because it may seem like Elijah is putting himself in the place of God. Have you ever wondered, you know, when I pray, can I pray, Lord, heal them? I command I command healing right now in the name of Jesus or I I encur- I command encouragement in Jesus name. Or do we kind of always feel default with, oh, God, we hope you do this, and, and God, we hope you do that. And I'm not trying to compare the prayer so much as to say that from this passage of Scripture, God very much says, I have given you the authority, and if I am working through you so long as you never forget who's working through you, then I give you the authority to act as my ambassador wherever I call you to go and wherever I call you to do. And so Elijah is saying, look, at my command, because I am an ambassador of the one true God, it is neither going to rain nor will you see any dew until I pray for it to rain again or bring dew. Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, leave here and turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to bring you, to uh, supply you with food there. And so he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank by the brook. Now sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land, and then the word of the Lord came to him and said, go, to once, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the great things that I look back on in living in California is for all of us who live in this climate in this region, there's a lot of crossover uh, between the ancient biblical setting and California. In fact, the, the climates, the land, everything is very, very similar. And of course, uh, we all I have lived here long enough, and any of you have been here the last few years, know what a drought looks like. And so uh, Elijah commands the drought, but rather than going toward a river, he, God calls him to a brook. And of course, uh, I've seen the process of what happens when a river dries out. First, it... It's kind of is flowing and then it goes down to a trickle, right? And then what comes after the trickle? The, come on, you've all lived here. The puddles, right? There's kind of puddles here and there, you know? And then what comes after the puzzle? Puddles. The the dust, (laughs) yeah. One more step in between the dust and the puddles. And that is the discolored sand, right? Some of the sand is darker. Some of the sand is lighter because there's still some water in the sand or maybe a little underneath the sand and so elijah essentially goes through this very same process as god calls him to careth now here's the thing i want you to think about elijah had just formed a a, had just performed a powerful miracle in front of a very well-known king 
All right, Ahab and Jezebel, they're very well known. Ahab is the king of Israel. Jezebel was one of the Phoenician princesses, and they marry, and it's kind of a big deal. Everybody throughout the land knows this. When Elijah comes and speaks to this couple, word would have gotten out what Elijah had just done. And what Elijah has done was an amazing miracle. He, by the power of his prayer and his word, he closed up the heavens, and there's not even any dew. We're talking zero humidity in this drought. Elijah becomes a very popular person almost overnight. In fact, when he meets Ahab again, Ahab says, there you are, Elijah, you troubler of Israel. And what Ahab is talking about there is he knows people behind his back are starting to go, Elijah just did this miracle. Elijah just did that miracle. Elijah just shut up the heavens. Elijah's more powerful than the king. And so Ahab is beginning to recognize this Elijah is gaining steam. Now, for many of us, we would have probably recommended to Elijah, hey, Elijah, it's time for you to go on a speaking tour. Hey, Elijah, we've got to start getting your book deals going. You know, Hey, Elijah, it's time for you to start a podcast. Everybody was talking about him. If there was any time for Elijah to begin to market his ministry, it was now after the greatest miracle he had probably performed up to that point in his life. But instead, God calls him to the middle of nowhere and says wait completely goes against conventional thinking god has him wait by a brook you think about it god could have called him to a river rivers last they last a little bit in a drought you know doesn't end overnight as far as we know he was by that brook for just a few months before the brook dried out Why did God call Elijah to wait when he had the greatest opportunity to just speak? He could have taken on the prophets of Baal right then and there. He could have done all this stuff right then and there when his popularity and his power, not his power, his popularity was at its zenith. And God calls him to wait. I think for many reasons, but for one, Elijah was not ready. There was more that God wanted to do in Elijah. The waiting time is not wasted time by God. It is often there in those moments that God is preparing you the most for what has to come next. And I know that we struggle with it. I know I do. I often think of my waiting times and I look back and go, you know what, I wish I would have gotten more out of the waiting time. I wish I would have gotten more. I didn't realize how impatient or how much I jumped the gun on certain things in my life. If only I'd have been a little more patient or seen the purpose of what seemed to be a standstill in life was actually God doing with me what he was doing with Elijah, taking him out to a ravine. Why did God lead Elijah to a brook and not a river? Because a brook takes far more trust than a river. And God wanted to build trust in Elijah. Because what Elijah had coming later in his life was going to take the most trust I think a man has ever had in God. Was going to take enormous faith. And God wanted to 
build that in Elijah long before he ever stood on Mount Carmel and took on the prophets of Baal. God was building that in Elijah. And it had to begin in a ravine called Kareth. Another thing that this really shows me is something I've often struggled with. We know Elijah's life story from here. He goes to Kirith Ravine. He sits there for a few months. Then he goes to Zarephath. He waits there for three and a half years. And then he confronts Ahab again. And then he has this big showdown on Mount Carmel, which was a strategic defense mountain there in Israel, between Israel and Phoenicia. And he goes up there and he has a showdown with the false gods and the idolatry gods and the idol gods and all their priests and Yahweh, the one true God, and Elijah was all alone. We know that that's ultimately what's going to happen. But Elijah didn't know that. Because you see, at each time, God only gave Elijah the next step. He goes to Ahab, and he says, it's not going to rain. God tells him the next step, go to Kareth. Now, we would have loved for God to say, Elijah, come here. Let me talk to you. So this is what's going to happen. First, you're going to go to Kareth for a few months. You're going to sit there. Don't worry. You're going to get fed. You're going to be eating Philly cheesesteak sandwiches for three months. You're going to love it. All right? Then I'm going to send you to Zarephath. Don't worry. No, it's a dangerous town. I'm going to be with you there. Then you're going to take on the prophets of Baal. You are going to win so decisively that the whole nation is going to want to start a revival into you. And then you're going to meet me on the mountain. And then there's going to be Elisha. Elijah, here is your whole life. God didn't do that. God doesn't do that. God often reveals just the next step. Why? Because he's building trust inside of us. Trust and faith. Trust and faith. And so Elijah goes to Kareth. And what does he do in Kareth? After he just did this great, amazing miracle, he does absolutely nothing. But he does do one thing. He waits. He waits and he waits and he waits. He sees the brook become a trickle and he's thinking, okay, God, any time now, <laughs> I don't want to dehydrate or worse yet, die of thirst. And all of a sudden there's just puddles. Of course, he, Elijah's a mountain man, so you know, he makes some reeds. He, he's sucking water. Thinking, okay, God, okay. And then the brook completely dries up. And where is Elijah? He's still there. I don't know about you, but I know me. I'd have been long gone. <laughs> I mean, I, I, hope I, I hope I wouldn't, but, but the temptation to just be like, you know what, I saw a river a few miles down. I'm just going to go camp there. I mean, you know, part of what I think just broke the father's heart for Elijah and f- caused him to fall in love with him so much is Elijah stood there. He was ready to die of thirst because he would not leave his post until God moved him on. There's kind of two ways we can live our lives. We can be the kind where it's like me standing at that bridge. You know what? I'm just going to jump. And that's one way. Sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose that way. But a lot of times you don't learn everything you could have. The other way is when you kind of take the approach, you know what, I'm going to wait. 
I'm going to wait on God. You kind of lean back. I'm going to wait on God. And all of a sudden, you feel this little push. And it's God kind of pushing you in to whatever he has next for you. I remember before I started dating my wife, I remember at first really wanting to get married. I wanted a family. I want, I want to have, you know, all the blessings that marriage brings. And, 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 I, and I think had I, never, had I never strayed from that, I would have just jumped for, for whatever I felt was going to be what I wanted or, or what, what, what I felt God wanted. But I remember I heard some good advice. Let God thrust you into a relationship rather than you going and grabbing, you know, first willing woman. And so I remember having that attitude of, you know, almost like, you know, keep girls away from me. You know, I mean, it was almost like, you know, just kind of, you know, pulling back, pulling back. And it was just this little push, this little push when Tanya and I began dating. And, that, and I kept leaning back. And that little push, that little push until finally it just sort of naturally evolved and we got engaged and got married. And I know, I've, I say that because very rarely do I share stories where I did something right. So I gotta, I gotta, I gotta take that one while I have it. But, but I've often, I've often heard from people, you know, we just jumped in too quick or we jumped into this. And I often wonder if we bypass the principle of learning God's purpose and God's heart for us in the wait. When you're waiting on God, Elijah stayed there when he had every reason to go. And then God leads Elijah to Zarephath. Zarephath, you, you may not understand this, but Elijah's call is to take on the false idols that were coming into Israel, all right? So what Detroit is to cars is what Zarephath is to idols. All of the metallurgists, all of the manufacturing, all of the factories for some of these big 30 and 40 foot idols, they were in Zarephath. God calls Elijah to the very city whose main industry he is called to preach against. What an odd thing. And what is God doing? He's continuing to build trust in Elijah. He's saying, Elijah, I am going to take you into the heart of the enemy. I want you to trust me enough. By the way, it's still a drought. Food's drying up. Water's drying up. Olive trees are dying. There's no oil. People are freaking out. People are starving to death. This is serious. This isn't like when we go through a drought and we still got food being piped in from where everybody else is getting rain. This is, I mean, this is serious. And when Elijah goes to Zarephath, he finds a, that God says, and go, he commands him to go to this widow. Now this widow is buttoning up her house. She's making plans because she has one meal left and no other means to get meals. So she tells Elijah, me and my son, we are going to starve to death. We know this. There's no food. There's no way for us to get food. So this is our last meal, and then we're going to die. Elijah says, well, I know you don't have a lot of food, and I know this is your last meal. But lady, would you share it with me? And I'm sure at first she's looking at him like, you a crazy fool. 
This is all I got, and I got a son. I have more of a responsibility to him than you. I think it was something the way about the way Elijah said it. But he grabbed her hands, he looked at her, and he said, if you feed me, I promise you until this drought is over, you will never run out of food. Maybe it was the look in his eyes. But she said, okay. And so she began to fix the bread and oil, make bread, and then the dipping oil. And then she noticed something. You know, I just scooped six cups of flour, and there's still six cups in there. So the next day, she does it again. And the next day, she does it again. And she begins to scratch her head. Why aren't we running out of food? So she does it again. Month goes by. She does it again. A year goes by, and she's looking at this jar underneath it and all around it. What is up with this jar? It's not running out of flour. She looks at the oil bin, and it's not running out of oil. It's a miracle that lasted three and a half years as the flour and the oil of the widow never ran dry. Now you may say, what does this have to do with the weight? Think about it. Not only is Elijah's trust growing sitting by a dried up brook, now his trust is growing in that he is in the heart of the enemy capital. And God is still with him because only God multiplies flour and oil. And you scratch your head because you don't even know how it's happening. You just know as you scoop, it's just still there. Something else happened. The widow's son, whether it was an accident or not, dies. And the widow comes to Elijah and says, you and your God. See, I worship all these idols. You and your God, you did this to us. You did this to me. It's you being here, me being nice to you. The gods took my son. Elijah looks at the woman and says, Lady, you know nothing of real power. And he gets on top of the sun, spreads out his body, sort of in a symbolic way of saying, Lord, the life of God in me, restore to him. And the boy comes back from the dead into the life. And when that boy stood up and that widow saw everything that happened, Elijah was ready to take on 900 prophets of Baal. He could have taken on 90,000 prophets. He could have taken on 90 million prophets because he knew one true God and miracles would destroy any other opposition. Three and a half years of waiting, three and a half years of growing, three and a half years of learning, three and a half years of being chiseled down into the man who was ready to win one of the greatest victories spiritually the Bible offers between God and the false gods. That was the story of Elijah in Zarephath and in Kirith. Now, if you take your sheet and you flip it over, there's uh, some 
there's, there's a discussion sheet we're going to go ahead and fill in. I just want to draw three points from this and then we'll all go home. The first one is this. Waiting helps us to grow through our past. Waiting helps us to grow through our past. If you're like me, most of us like to move on real quick after a failure. You know what I'm saying? You know, you do something stupid, you do something embarrassing, you're kind of like, you know, can we just move on from that? Can we not talk about that? You know, I, I, I often have a problem because I'll say things and, and I'm like, I, I say a lot of gaffes, you know, a lot of things where I'll be talking, I'll be saying something, and I'll look at my wife and she's going, what are you saying? She's not actually saying that, but you know, I can tell by the look in her eyes, I just said something stupid. So then I'll be quiet for a moment. I'll think about what I said. Oh, my gosh, I said that. Oh, I can't take that back. And then I'll begin to feel stupid. And all I want to do is get out of wherever I leave the restaurant, leave the party, leave whatever. Oh, my goodness, I just said something so stupid. It happens. It has happened all my life. It still happens. And every now and then, like a day or two later, you know, Tanya will be like, hey, you know, about that thing you said, and you know what my reaction is? Oh, can we just get past that? (laughs) Oh, can we just forget about that? Oh, can we just, you know, I think that's natural human reaction. Whenever we make a mistake or we have a failure, we almost want to just move on from it very quickly because it's very hard and humiliating sometimes to look into our mistakes. But if we don't, We'll never grow through failure. (laughs) We'll never grow through failure. You know what happens if you never grow through failure? We remain babies. Adult babies. Babies with 401ks. Babies with mortgages. (laughs) Babies with every, you know, babies with all that. But I mean, but we, we never, we never mature. We never grow. We never build the resiliency that God wants to build in us. We're emotionally flickering and flackering all over the place because we haven't taken the time to grow through our failures. And often the times where we grow through our failures is the waiting place. That season of waiting where we are. Is that, that better be the president of the United States. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If there's one thing I've learned about past failures... You can't go back, and there's no do-overs. But God, through the waiting and the learning and the preparing, can do amazing things even through failures. This passage of Scripture is a passage of Scripture that I often read, especially when I've blown it, or when I just look back and think, man, have I, has this year made a difference? Have I, has anything been worth it? Joel chapter 2, verse 25 says this for God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten and the palmer worm and the canker worm and he will restore God's best for your life with the few days you have left now if there's some of you here thinking you know what I look back over my past and I see a lot of wasted time not waiting time not time where I was growing, just wasted time. It was like I was on a road going nowhere fast. Or maybe there was failures. You look back and say, you know what? I had decades of failures 
decades of mistakes, decades where I was blinded by my own pride or my own arrogance, decades where I was held back by my own fears and by my own hang-ups, decades where I could have had this relationship with God that I want to have, but because of me, I just cut it off and I, I didn't have it because there were some things I didn't take time to deal with. Joel's promise is for you. God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. If it took you this long to get there, it'll take God this long to get you out. You've spent this much in addiction, God can get you out that much. You've spent this much in depression, God can get you out that much. You've spent this much in failure, God can get you out that much. You've spent this much in confusion, God can get you out that much. It's amazing how quickly the restoration can come when we commit to the waiting period and allow God to grow us through the wait, to grow us through our failures. Number two, waiting reminds us of our absolute need for God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says it this way, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own. Like the popular saying goes, don't borrow sorrow from tomorrow. What God is trying to tell us here is, and actually, you know what this applies? The first point applies to when we've had failures. The second point applies to when we've had great successes, right? Sometimes when we have great successes and we're successful and we're competent and we're capable, we can begin to kind of say, you know what, I don't, do I really need God in the way that people say I need God when I'm so competent and capable of doing it? One of the worst things that can happen to Tom Nackey is when I do something and it's successful and it goes well. You know what happens the next time I go to do it? I just try to replicate what I did and hope it goes well. It's amazing how success can really confuse and cloudy and muddy the sense of my absolute need for God. It's often when things go bad, they're a failure or something bombed, then I'm like, oh God, I need you, I just blew it. But when things are going right, it's very easy. And this was Elijah, remember? Elijah had just performed his, probably his biggest miracle of his life up to that point. He's thinking, God, we've got the edge. We've got the momentum. Let's go on that speaking tour. Let's get the podcast going. Let's get this thing moving. We're going to have revival in Israel. And the very thing that God leads him not to do is any of that stuff. Because God wanted to remind Elijah, Elijah, you could go out and do all that. But remember, your absolute need of me is what I want to build in you. So I'm going to take you to a brook that's going to dry up. And you're going to realize, I need God or else I'm going to die of thirst right now. I'm going to take you right into the middle of the enemy with a widow that has no food. And you're going to know your absolute need of me in that moment. And then when you're on the mountain and you're facing 950 prophets and they're all dancing and doing all their things, you'll remember your absolute need for me. And it will win the day. Amen? Number three, waiting slows you down enough to see people you wouldn't normally see. I often think about the widow because in Luke chapter 4, 
This is something very interesting. I read to you this story about the widow in Zarephath, but actually she was one of the few people in the Old Testament that Jesus mentions specifically by name. And Jesus essentially says that God heard the cries of this widow and sent Elijah to go and take care of her. Now this widow in Zarephath was probably unknown, unseen. You all know who I'm talking about. They're the forgotten people of society. They're the people that people have given up on. Nobody believes in them. Nobody ever believed in them. Nobody ever gave them a shot. Nobody definitely ever gave them a second shot. They're kind of there but not there. Seen but not seen. We walk by and think, well, they're somebody else's problem. They're somebody else's responsibility. I hope they figure out what they need in the world. I hope somebody helps them. I, I hope something happens good in their life. They're the people we walk by. Because so often we are in such a hurry that we don't see the unseen people. The people that God has a heart for. The people that God loves so much. And sometimes the waiting period, the waiting season, slows us down enough so that we can begin to see the people that we wouldn't normally see. Jesus and the disciples were going at such a hurried pace that at one point Jesus said, my feet are tired, I'm thirsty, I'm going to send you all to go into town and get some food, and I'm going to sit by this well, and I'm going to take a few minutes to myself. Had Jesus never said that, he would have never had that beautiful conversation with the woman in John chapter 4 that led to a revival in a village in Samaria. One time I was waiting for a, an appointment. Somebody had set an appointment with me and we we're going to have coffee at Starbucks. I get there on time and I was proud of it. I think I even got there early. And you know, minutes go by, minutes go by and I'm like, what, what's, you, 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 what's going on? Text, hey, you coming? Oh, all this, I'm going to be late. Da, da, da. I'm like, oh, if I've been here for 10 minutes, you could have called me. You know what? I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? This is the problem with my life. There's too many interruptions, too much of my day is wasted, and I'm just beginning to get upset, and I'm, I'm, getting, I'm thinking to myself, how can I text this person in a way that kind of sticks it to them, <laughs> but, but also gets the message across, you know what, I'm going to leave now, because I can't wait for 40 minutes for you to get here. And as I'm stewing over all of this, I had my computer out, and I had my sermon there, and my study books and all that. The guy leans over, and he asks what time it is, who's sitting next to me. So I tell him what time it is. And he says, oh, hey, what are you doing? Looks like you're really into something there. I saw I'm working on my message. He said, what's a message? I said, well, a message is what Christian pastors give on Sundays to their congregations. He goes, oh, really? Are you a Christian pastor? I don't know why I put the adjective Christian in front of it. I could have just said pastor. But anyway, we were going with Christian pastor the whole time during that conversation. I said, yes, I am, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually here waiting for an appointment, and I'm working on this, and we began to have a conversation which ended with me praying for him, me encouraging him. You may say, why isn't he at this church? Because he was traveling to somewhere in Los Angeles, and he had just stopped for a break. You know, Highway 99, I was at the Starbucks right by the Highway 99, and had God not had me wait, had that appointment person not come in 40 minutes late, I'd have never had that conversation. I'd have never prayed that prayer. 
and the encouragement God wanted to give that guy would have never happened. See, sometimes God slows us down long enough to see people we might not normally see. Frances Green was an 83-year-old widow living in Daly City, California. And every year she donated $1 to the Republican Party. She would always give thank you letters. And one year, one year she got a thank you letter with an invitation to the White House to meet with President Reagan. Only she didn't read the part of the invitation that said reserved for significant donors only. So Frances Green scraped together every last penny she could and she bought a train ticket from San Francisco, California to Washington, D.C. When she went to the White House front gate, she showed the letter and she expected the guard to let her in and come and see the president. The guard argued with her and promptly turned her around, raising a big ruckus. Well, at the time, she had come on foot. One of the Ford Motor Company executives had also come up and had seen the guard's treatment of the woman and had overheard the story of what happened. And so the Ford Motor Company executive got out of his car, calmed Ms. Green down, and said, I want you to go to this hotel. I want you to stay there for two days. In two days, uh, I'm going to be meeting again with the president. I want you to come with me. And, uh, and, and you can be my guest. He put her up in a hotel for two days, paid for it. He paid for all of her meals, and he paid for her taxi ride there and back. Sure enough, she showed up two days later, uh, but the Ford Motor Company exec wasn't there, but they whisked her in anyway, knowing that she was on the list to come in. And they proceeded to give her a White House tour. But Frances Green thought that she was invited to meet the president. So upon seeing the Oval Office, she walked right in and right through the door and was going to go and have a conversation with President Reagan, who was sitting there at the time. The Secret Service converge on her. The White House staff converge on her, and they start to manhandle her, dragging her out of the office. And President Reagan says, stop! Let her in. Puts down his book. Puts down his glasses. Shoves everything to the side. He brings a chair up right next to him. And for the next 30 minutes, one of the most powerful men in the world has a conversation with an 83-year-old woman from Daly City, California. Can you imagine the significance that woman felt when she left the White House that day? Because one man, one man saw the value of the period of the wait and saw a person that nobody else saw. And she left that day feeling significant, loved, and accepted. In this series, I'm obviously challenging us as a church to consider what God has called us to. But I can tell you this, every single one of us is called. We're being asked by God to see the people nobody else sees 
to love the people nobody else loves and to accept the people that are so forgotten or have been given up on so many times, given up so many times, they don't even expect acceptance anymore. Rejection is just all they know. Every single one of us has an opportunity to be Jesus to those people. And I pray to God you will. Before we close this morning, I'd like to give a very simple invitation. Perhaps some of us are moving so fast and so busy and so noisy in our lives that we have not waited for the presence of Jesus. We've not waited to hear the call of the voice of God. And some of us may have never waited long enough to truly receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, Jesus as Shepherd, calling the shots, Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the only ruler in the afterlife is named Jesus. That's it. However many presidents and prime ministers we may have on earth, two seconds after you die, there's only one ruler. His name is Jesus. Let's not be in such a hurry that we miss him and that we miss that. So this morning, please, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let's wait for a moment. And my invitation is this. How many of you would like to either for the first time or rededicate your lives and saying, I'm going to wait for Jesus, surrender my life to God, and make Him my Lord and Savior. If that's you, just go ahead and raise your hand right now. Raise your hand up. Amen. 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 Let's all respond in prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, help us to wait upon you and surrender our lives to you as we make you our Lord and our Savior. Fill us with your Spirit and help us to slow down, to heal, to recognize, and to see the people who are unseen. In Jesus' name, amen.